Yeah, Harold, you're not the only one with folder issues. Evan decided to reorganize our files and, and we're having total, total reorg that ruined, that made it difficult for everyone to find where anything is. <laughs>
and uh, and and told Heather about this that uh, we should get this guy on the podcast. And he is a lawyer, and he has a lot of experience in the area of uh, of I don't know if it's specifically called litigating financial advisors, but he knows a lot about it. And I'm just so interested in what he has to say. And I know a lot of people out there in my profession um, would probably uh, really get a lot out of hearing what uh, he sees in his line of work. So Harold, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, we are so excited and so so grateful you gave us uh, some time this afternoon. Well, it's a pleasure to appear and I've, I've been following your work. It's um, education and we all need more education, access to understandable information, especially when it involves finances and law. Those can be pretty complex areas. So congratulations on your ability to communicate complex concepts that can be understand understandable. Sometimes I feel like we don't totally nail that, but we we certainly try. <laughs> Our guests often do, though, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Welcome, Harold. Pleasure. So what's your favorite taco? Let's get that one out of the way first. <laughs> oh, that's simple. For me, it's shrimp. Oh, oh excellent choice. <laughs> All right, Kim. I'll, it's I'll really turn... the location which I eat the taco. That's uh, the most important part. <laughs> isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? <laughs> All right, Kim. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know Harold's entire background, and, and I was hoping you might uh, just give our listeners uh, just a brief introduction of, of your history and why you got interested in this area of the law. Well, everything is a roundabout way that we end up where we are in life. Uh, mine, um, I'm now 30 years as a lawyer, but as I, when I was starting out, um, uh, I uh, qualified to be a financial advisor when I was in grade 13, when they were still grade 13. And uh, I was going to get into university. So my mother, who was, had some wisdom, said, you should learn two things learn how to cook for yourself. So I went off to a college, George Brown College, and learned small quantity cooking. And I took the Canadian Securities course, which is the entry level course for becoming a stockbroker. And I passed. Um, I wasn't old enough, but in the next birthday, I would be able to advise people not only on what stocks to buy and sell, but also on how to plan their retirement and how to plan for their um, uh, for their heirs in the science. They're, they're people who followed after them. I had never balanced a checkbook. I'd never had a full-time job. I'd never had a debt of any significance. And yet, I passed the course. Well, flash forward a few a number of years, and um, uh, I had a case where I was defending somebody in small claims court and had to learn about a, a product called an impaired annuity. Doesn't really matter what it is. It's complex. And because I knew nothing, I started interviewing financial advisors to find out what I needed to know in order to represent my client. After I was done that, uh, I was approached by advisors who I'd interviewed and said, uh, look, nobody stands up for advisors. Why don't we train you? So I started being training, training by them on, on really the subject matter, learning about finances, by learning about financial instruments, how to invest and things like that. But what surprised me is I started getting cases on behalf of their clients, clients that they were taking over and where they hadn't been well served in the advisors uh, uh, from the advisor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And as I learned more and more, I became better and better known in the area. And for the last 25 years, I've been practicing in the area. For the last 20 years, my uh, practice practically limited to this area. Um, I also work with regulators, and I try and bring the consumer's perspective to them. What it's like to be in the trenches and dealing with financial advisors from the consumer investor's perspective. And so I work with securities commissions, with insurance regulators, and with industry groups on um, uh, communicating standards and setting standards and on making uh, it more accessible for people like your clients. That's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. So I, I, the first question I have is, are there any trends in, in your work where, you know, common pitfalls that are getting people into legal trouble in this area? 
So from the financial advisor's point of view, yeah, there are trends. And um, it all comes back to a very basic concept. And that is uh, financial advisors are not guarantors of results. They guarantee that they will follow a process. And the process is well known. It's well established. And it's a heavily regulated area. So uh, there shouldn't be any surprises. Unfortunately, we all hate paperwork. And financial advisors are no different than that. And uh, they want to uh, give people what they think clients want. They want to be pleasers. So they often um, uh, jump to helping out a client in a way which seems to solve the client's immediate need, but doesn't solve the long-term process. It doesn't have the paperwork, doesn't have the process, the steps that go through to help protect their clients. And if they have followed process, they often don't write it down. And you have to write down your records, whether you're a financial advisor or a lawyer, or if somebody comes knocking on your door and say, says, I think you've made a mistake, Mr. Professional. It's pretty hard to defend the mistake you made, partially because we're all humans. We can't recall every detail. But it's also partially because those of us who are professionals are supposed to create records. We're supposed to follow processes. We're supposed to have a transparent approach. And if we don't, that causes problems. So think of it this way. If we, as lawyers, had somebody come and say, look, two years ago, I should have been told X or Y. I should have been told there was a risk. Well, unless we can reach back into our records and say, well, we did discuss it. And if you recall, on July 2nd, we had a meeting. And in that meeting, we talked about these things, including this risk. And this is what we discussed. Unless we can do that, the client's likely to be dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. Client's likely to escalate. And if they've got a loss, they might call me. And then I'm knocking on your door. Um, I wonder if we can like maybe even zoom out a little bit further um, for, for people out there who aren't aware. I think we've mentioned advisors versus financial planners. Could you give us a wee primer on what the folks in this industry, are there different types of folks and do they do different things? Do they have different obligations? Oh, absolutely. And it's a, it's a good question. So in Alberta, for example, these, uh, these titles are not regulated. In some provinces, there are regulations, Quebec and Ontario. In Saskatchewan, they're developing one. They all have different definitions. Why be consistent? Why make it easy for investors <laughs> and consumers? It's all about turfs. And, you know, Alberta doesn't go the same way as the rest of the provinces on a lot of things. It's not surprising. It's not wrong. It just is. So a financial advisor is essentially an entry level process. There's somebody who might be only uh, able to sell certain products. So, for example, there might be securities licensed. And until recently, they might have been mutual fund licensed. And the mutual fund advisor couldn't sell stocks and bonds unless they were packaged in a fancy package called the mutual fund. And then you got insurance agents who also sell investments. But those are totally different, regulated again, totally different terminology and totally different fees. And so um, uh, the financial advisor in Alberta can describe any of those. Describe somebody who doesn't even actually have any qualifications, any certifications, any licensing. And thus, the consumer might not have any protections. Um, so that's a financial advisor. It's really an entry-level uh, uh, designation. It could be called all sorts of other things as well. A uh, retirement advisor, a uh, estate uh, advisor, all the same sort of things and really have no specific meetings in a lot of provinces. A financial planner is supposed to follow more of a planning process. They're supposed to not just take a picture of what you're doing today and short term, but to create documents following one of a number of standards. For example, the Financial Planning Standard Council, who creates the CFP designation, has a six-step process, which all of their advisors are required to follow or in writing contract out of that process with you. 
Why would you give it up? Uh, it's so helpful to have a plan. It's so not just somebody saying, I got a plan for you, but a plan that you can look at, a plan that's customized for you, a plan that really speaks about your own unique circumstances. And a lot of the bank associated dealers will give you for free a plan. Most of them are incredibly template and next to meaningless. Why? Because they're full of industry jargon. Most of them are the same for everyone, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your investment experience, your investment knowledge, your education, your goals. But you get the same charts. You get the same CPP calculations and OAS, whether or not you've been paying in. They give you the same results out. That is not a true financial plan. It's simply a sales tool. What you want from is to find a financial planner that has cred credentials like Financial Planning Standards Council, CFP, or the RFP, the Registered Financial Planner, a higher designation, um, in order to help you work through the process. Most, <laughs> look, you pay the same for a financial advisor or a financial planner. Why not get the better product, something which you can measure your actions against, your advisors' actions against your planners, and which you can take and update every number of years, not every year, but if there's been a significant change, or every five years or so would be a good time to take stock, to reconsider and to plan. But I mentioned that um, uh, there are some trigger events um, that really should speed up that process. If you get an inheritance, your circumstances may have changed. If you're changing jobs, your circumstances may have changed. If you're getting close to retirement, that's a big change. You're going from earning capital or earning income to spending your capital. So that's a pretty dramatic change. If you have an experience like in 2020, and you might have found that you thought you were more of a risk taker, but aren't liking the losses in 1920 in 2023. Um, you might find that your risk tolerance is less than you thought it was. It's a good time to go back, check your financial advice, check your holdings, and reconsider your plan. It's a learning process. And you, through your life, we're all learning. That's it. That's some great information in an industry that has a seemingly never-ending number of post-nominals. Just ask Kim how many she has. Um, and there's and so many. Let me just say, uh, some of them have value. I mean, some of them have really quality stuff. CIM, the STEP, the RFP, the CFP. Some of these are real quality things. Well, you that's can also send that's what we in five dollars in box caps and get some of these designations as well. Um, yeah. So that's that's what we want to know, Harold. Is like, okay, what what are the really good designations to look for? that are, and so you mentioned a couple of them. CFP is Certified Financial Planner. What's uh, RFP, Registered Financial Planner? Yes, and so that's um, uh, 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 just a higher uh, accreditation within the, um, um, the planning process. So CFP, you have to have to become an RFP, but the Registered Financial Planner have some higher ethical requirements and um, some of their uh, continuing uh, development, continuing education is really superior. I, I uh, spoke at a conference for the RFP uh, um, organization uh, this fall and I sat in to learn what the other speakers were sharing their knowledge because it really was high quality content. Um, STEP is, um, I can't tell you what STEP stands for. Kim, do you remember? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it's the Trust and Estate Practitioners. So right. that's, yeah, that's kind of on the estate side of things. Another terrific degree, or uh, sorry, accreditation, um, where uh, they have some fantastic education as well. Uh, in insurance, the CLU designation is, uh, I would say, sort of an entry level that you can get qualified with less. And insurance is notoriously low barrier to entry. It's not like an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist. Um, uh, you can sell life insurance 
really with some very, well, grade 13. Um, so limited education, limited experience, whereas there are some higher degrees for insurance like the CLU. There are a number of other uh, accreditations which are really good, but I would look at uh, uh, the sites. So you know, if you've got initials, you know what they are. As uh, the Ontario Securities Commission's chair said in 1988, we got to stop this alphabet of designations. It really is just random seeming um, uh, a series of letters after all of our names. But look up on the internet what they stand for. Look at their ethical uh, obligations. Even the lowest standards claim that they are going to give you a best interest standard. That is, they're always going to put your best interest first. Is it a fiduciary obligation, a much higher standard? Will they um, uh, avoid all conflicts? Will they, and to be frank, you can't avoid all conflicts, but you can disclose your conflicts. Are they going to tell you about the commissions that they're earning? Are they going to tell you that they have a limited uh, license? If they have a limited license, can only sell insurance or mutual funds. Um, these are the types of things that you want to research in advance. Don't simply accept that because you walked into a well-known organization, uh, a dealer or a bank, um, that they're going to look out for your interests. These are sales organizations. They may have some very qualified people within the organizations, but they also have some people with really basic uh, education and experience. You want to find, you want to find the best person available. And frankly, some of the best people don't cost you more. So why not get the best? Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's such a, we've talked about this before about like banks. Um, I guess it's about a year and a half, two years ago now where there was, you know, an investigative report by, I, I can't remember one of the newspapers or media outlets here in Canada where they were really exploring how banks were using, I think they were using the title financial advisor, um, which as you mentioned is not accredited. And so anybody can call themselves a financial advisor and the banks were, were doing this uh, for, that's the title that, you know, their people had and the average person thought that meant that they had some kind of education that they were accredited. And of course they weren't. And these people were the people that were working as financial advisors at the bank. A lot of them were like, you know, telling horror stories of the pressures the bank was putting on them to sell products and take advantage of people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's, that's like such a prime example that you just gave is like, you know, just going to the bank is not, uh, going to guarantee that you're going to get somebody of quality, maybe, or maybe not. You know, another example is the titles that are sometimes used by way of director, um, vice president. You know, I, I remember looking um, at a, um, uh, uh, a roster of one of the bank dealers at one point, and everybody seemed to be a vice president. Was it because they were particularly qualified? It's that they had done enough sales to qualify to be called this title. Um, I think that's uh, misleading, but uh, it was permissible until recently. And now what we're getting is new types of titles, uh, which um, uh, banks and other dealers are using in order to pump up their sales reps. Um, uh, another thing just to watch for, and I'm sorry to jump ahead, but it seems connected is some of these guys, like you were, uh, you were talking about, Evan, um, always recommend their own institutions, branded products. Well, take a look at how those branded products have done over the last five years. And you'll find that generally they're higher fees and generally they are inconsistent returns. They are rarely in your best interest. So it doesn't matter whether it's RBC, CIBC, TD, any of the other banks or whatever, they often want you to buy their own products, even though they underperform the top quartile of the market, the top 25%. That's gotta stop. But the only way you can stop it in your account is by becoming informed because the regulators are not protecting you on these things at this stage. Now, I just, there's, 
a word that you said a while ago that I want you to expand on for everybody because it's, it's related to this, right? And it, it, you're touching on, you're getting at the core of, I think what that word means and it's fiduciary, whether or not someone has a fiduciary duty. And so, um, yeah, can you explain that a little bit and, and how, why banks it, it's, don't have that fiduciary duty or if they do, yeah. how that works? So uh, fiduciary duty is a very old legal concept, um, and it comes from a Latin word like a lot of legal concepts do. Um, it's a duty of uh, uh, highest loyalty. So to give you examples of, of historical examples, you know, a priest to the pra- the, their parishioner, of course, if you're confessing to your priest, they've got the highest duty to you. Uh, a lawyer to a client, a doctor to a patient. These are ones where the interest of the client not only has to come first, but you have to act in their best interest and you gotta avoid conflicts of interests. You gotta do all the right things. The things we want of our financial advisor or financial planner. Um, frankly, anyone can agree to adhere to these standards. Most spout that they will act in your best interest, but then go off and sell. Um, There is the largest uh, organization of financial advisors in Canada, um, has a best interest standard, but has never enforced the best interest standards to the best of my uh, research. Not one decision, even when they've lost members because they've defrauded the public, they haven't held that standard to protect the client. Banks could sign on to a fiduciary standard and they do in that when they receive their money, they actually hold your money. They have to make sure it's there for you at the end. They have a fiduciary standard with respect to that. But when they're selling you product, they do not. They choose not to hold themselves to a fiduciary standard. They choose to do what's in their best interest. And a perfect example is that some of the banks, when faced with some regulatory changes last year, went from selling competitor products and their own products to only selling their own products. Abuse in my view. But the securities regulators have not clamped down on them, so they're able to do that. They are not holding themselves to fiduciary standard with respect to advising you on what your interests are, what you should buy. So a fiduciary standard um, is uh, uh, something which people like lawyers and accountants and doctors and dentists and all those true professions, the ones that have colleges and have, uh, you have to have university degrees and specialized studies to get into, We want to see that brought into this other area, financial advice, because for most of people we know, the most important person among all of these quasi-professionals or professionals for most of their life is their financial advisor who's going to help them keep to their budgets, help them save, pay down debt, save, and plan for their retirement. They're only going to use lawyers occasionally. They're only going to use accountants, maybe occasionally. And they'll need doctors when they really need doctors. And then they're more important. But for the day in, day out, financial advisors really should be a profession in Canada. And people like Kim, with all of her credentials and the continuing study, they're leading the way to better protection, to better advice for Canadians. So what would be, Harold, in in your opinion, what would be a a process that people should expect from an advisor from the moment they pick up the phone and call them and say, hi, I'm looking for someone? What would you think is a good uh, expectation uh, moving forward? Well, uh, I think uh, there are a few things that you look for out of the gates. First of all is time. These are not quick processes. They're uh, engaging and they require some really hard thinking. A second thing is somebody who really listens. I don't think it's really important what sports you're interested in and how your golf game is for financial planning. Fact, it's not. And if you're getting invited out as marketing to free lunches at with alcohol or fancy restaurants, you can't do financial planning in uh, restaurants. You, 
You sit down at a desk and you engage. They should be gathering your information. They should be checking your information. They should be looking at your bank accounts. They should be looking at what your assets are, what your liabilities are, what you owe people. They should be looking at what your income is, not what you think your income is, but what actually the T4s or T5s show. If they're not gathering these documents, I don't think they're doing their job. Um, they should also be explaining things in plain language, throwing around fancy things. And I was listening to you trying to explain um, and simplify derivatives on one of the earlier podcasts you did. I mean, if they're throwing around terms like derivatives and shorting and all these sorts of uh, concepts of margin, well, you should be asking questions. Do they not know their stuff well enough to talk to, in plain language to you? Because fancy terms are things people hide behind. It's not good communication. They should be writing to you and confirming your information. They should be updating themselves regularly about what your circumstances are, educating you on things that come along. So margin, this great term, few people should have a margin account. What is a margin account? It's another way of borrowing to invest. Well, the advisor makes more money off of that. Why? Because you've got more money to invest and usually they're paid on assets that you have to invest. So it's a conflict of interest. If you read the materials, margin amplifies your risk. And think about the type of risks over the last period of time with increasing cost of borrowing. That was a risk. It was a foreseeable risk. Did your financial advisor talk to you about if you're borrowing to invest, how you might have a margin call, meaning you have to put in cash all of a sudden? Come up with it, particularly when the market's down, when the economy's down, when your ability to, get, to come up with more cash is at its lowest. That's a really high risk activity. So you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, private equity, uh, exempt market uh, products. Oh, uh, invest like Buffett by buying big percentages of tiny companies. Well, small cap is generally considered under a billion. <laughs> so, um, you know, if, you're, if the company's a startup and it's, you know, like there are a lot of startups in Alberta, it's a great, great uh, innovator for business. But is it appropriate for most of us to be invest, investing in a startup? Yeah, you might hit a home run. Absolutely. But more likely, you're going to lose your money. So, is that suitable for you? Can you, if you're going to invest $50,000 in a startup, you should be willing to say, I've lost the $50,000 the day you invested. And if it's there in 10 years or whenever you need the money, then it's found money. Because most of these things are gambles and ones that neither your financial advisor nor you can properly evaluate. So what am I talking about there? Well, does your financial, are they able, an expert in the industry? Are they an expert in the financial statements of the industry? Are they expert on the way that the, uh, uh, the industry borrows money? Are they experts in the way that company borrowed money? These are really, really complex questions. And most financial advisors, all but very, very few, don't have the training in that. And so micro companies are really unknown risk. So that's the type of thing where financial advisors may be following what a client's really interested in on the face of it. Client wants to, ask, uh, to find the next, uh, I don't know, uh, Shopify, although that ended up not quite as good as it started. Um, but is that suitable for them? Probably not. I hope I answered your question, Kim. I talked a lot. <laughs> I think people are just interested to know, um, you know, what the red flags are. So if they meet somebody and they sound really good, they present well, they've got a snappy uh, outfit on, um, how do you know if they are, are 
you know, telling you the truth, charging you the right amount of fees, like a reasonable amount of fees. And uh, I just think it's very challenging for people to know who to trust because like to your point earlier, there's so many titles out there and, and really there's so much to specialize in this industry. So if you want to be an investment person, like the CFP is not enough to teach you what is needed to know about like really understanding investing and, and investment advisors, they, it, you know, they'll have a tough time on the planning side because they haven't gone through the bajillion hours that it takes to become a really good financial planner. So it's it's really tricky, I think, to know who it, what professional you're seeking out um, because, like, the truth is, is that once you get a lot of, uh, uh, like, credentials, the amount of dollars that you're looking for from clients increases. So they're therein lies the issue uh, that Australia recently faced uh, the last, I don't know, five years ago, where there just weren't enough advisors to service all the little guys. And um, that's, that's, you know, that's the risk, right? So I don't know, Harold, if you can talk a little bit about that, because people don't know that, like, they don't know that advisors who are highly accredited want bigger accounts. Well, um, so, there's some public policy issues there, which um, are quite complex. And I'll just identify them, but I'm not going to go into them in any detail because I don't think it helps most of us choose a financial advisor. The public policy is, um, should we be um, uh, 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 supporting the uh, higher credentials, the better skill sets, or should we um, boil it down to the lowest common denominator so everyone can talk to somebody about money regardless of their that experts, so-called experts, uh, ability, qualifications, training, experience. It's a tough question. But for your audience who are going out and either evaluating their existing financial advisors and planners or choosing one, um, you're quite right, Kim, there are different skill sets involved. Um, I don't do real estate. I refer that out to somebody. I don't do criminal law. I refer that out family law. There's in law, it's the same sort of thing. We have some generalists who know a little bit about everything, and we have specialists who know a whole lot about specific areas. So it depends upon the complexity and um, of your circumstances, and the amount of money you have to invest is one of those factors. Practically speaking, um, the more qualified people often have higher expenses. They've got the sunk cost of getting those qualifications as well as running their operation. Um, so I think that you need different things at different times. Every number of years, one, five, 10 years. So when you start five years in, 10 years in, maybe you can take a gap then. You need a plan. You need a real plan. You need a roadmap. You need to determine well, basic things like if you have debt, is it better to pay it down the debt before investing? A lot of the more skilled people will say that's, a, that's your safest investment, paying down debt, because you're guaranteed to make the return that you would have paid, right? So you don't have to pay it out, but the interest rate, that's good. You also take more control of your finances by paying down debt. So a financial planner is more focused on those sorts of plans, paying down debt when you're going to need chunks of money for a new roof, for your kid's education, major milestone events, which you have to plan for. Now, there's a separate thing about, okay, I have some savings. And I want to invest so that my money can grow over time. Um, and everybody wants their money to grow over time, which is not, by the way, the same as the industry term, a growth investment. Watch out. Some of these terms uh, sound like common sense and mean something very different. A growth investment is usually equity and higher risk in industry lingo. So careful, but um, people might want to invest. So you should be seeking out people with a broad um, uh, uh, shelf is what the industry calls it, many different products they could sell. 
You want somebody who's not siloed into something like mutual funds. Mutual funds are not bad in themselves, but they're high cost products. And the mutual fund industry has their own advisors who can only sell that. So even if there's a better product to you, they can only sell you a mutual fund. They're going to recommend a mutual fund. Um, the, uh, um, you want somebody who can say, well, maybe a portfolio of some stocks and maybe some more um, complicated things on a small portion are appropriate for you. So maybe that small portion, uh, portion is higher risk, but you've segregated that, you know how much that's going to be, and that's your ability to make a home run to really do big uh, uh, returns, but you also might lose it. You want somebody who's going to take these component parts, layer them, so that when you have your kid's education bill coming in, you've got the money free for it. It's not in another 10-year investment and you can't access it. It's ready when your kid needs the money. Um, when you're go to uh, when you're heading towards retirement, somebody who will look at your circumstances and adjust your risk because this is a major change in your risk when you can't earn money more. When we quit and we give up our licenses and we no longer have that secure job, we can't afford the same risk in our money because if we lose it, we're never getting it back. So you need somebody who's going to go through those stages with you. And for some people who are more sophisticated, who've been in the market for many years, who have studied financial statements, who have studied the uh, experts' reports, third-party independent information, um, uh, maybe then they can take on some individual trading where they're directing the trades, where they're making the decisions. What we don't want is the gamification, people looking at their accounts every day and buying and selling. Because the stats on that is that the clients do terribly, but oddly enough, the advisors statistically do worse. They trade on their own account and underperform not only the market, like their clients underperform the market, but they underperform their own clients. So don't be a stock picker because it's really, really hard. You've got to have experience. You've got to have a trusted relationship with a financial advisor before you go that way. Start off with more basic steps, planning, making sure you've got your cash wedge, an idea that you have cash in case you need it in the short term. Start planning for some shorter term investments and longer term investments. Do it in steps. Don't just jump in and think everyone's going to be the next Buffett because there's a reason why we all want to be the next Buffett. There's only one of him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and Buffett isn't a guy that's doing like he's not known for day trading and, and making a lot of trades. He he's known for finding on uh, undervalued businesses and investing in those and and holding it long term. Like he, you know, he bought Coca Cola when it was a few dollars, and now it's worth over fifty dollars a share. And and uh, so he those shares have worked really well for him. He's got a lot of them, but he held them a long time. He bought them in the eighties when nobody else was buying it. So. Uh, and he's been buying Occidental Petroleum recently. Right. Why? Because it was out of favor. Oil stocks were out of favor for a while. So he uh, believed it was a undervalued. That is, it was not a growth stock. It was the inverse. It was a, a stock that the price earning ratio, a very old concept, but it was tried and true. The price was relatively low versus the earning. And uh, Buffett is also incredibly smart because he has companies that generate revenue every year, not just those where, uh, where he's taking a risk. So uh, he can subsidize his losses in the risk companies with the revenue that's spun off every year. Um, that's what very few of us can do. Um, he, uh, he, he and Charlie Munger are very open about their investing style. And frankly, I think their investing um, newsletters are, should be compulsory reading. They are such basic financial concepts. They are good education. Uh, 
about buying his shares are difficult because of the incredible entry cost. Uh, there, you have to buy, you can't buy a fraction of it. You have to put down hundreds of thousands of dollars. But his model of investing is one that many of us admire greatly, because although there's a risk component for some of his holdings, most of them are what's called value investing. They are good price earning ratios. Um, and although he has Apple, he bought it cheap. Yeah, right. well, I know. Buys after the long term, as you were saying, Kevin. Right. And so because of that, like, guess what? He is not, like, if you look at Berkshire Hathaway's financial statements, it is not the case that they're making 20, 30, 40, 50% every single year. Some years they're down. And, and, and he, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He makes educated guesses and, and, uh, and he, he does that fundamental analysis and sometimes, and, and so he's built a great portfolio, but like, uh, like you said, there's always, there's always risk and there's risk in his investments. And he'd be the first to tell you that like, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is going to do well or not. No, I, I, that's exactly right. And, and so again, he is a very big proponent of a disciplined process and uh, that's the key, I think, in, in, in what, he, um, what he does, what he tries to share to the public. I, I, there was a very interesting um, uh, bet that he made the, uh, a number of years ago. took a long time for anybody to take it up. But he bet a million dollars of his own money. And he said, I will pick three holdings. And you... Mr. Advisor, whoever you will be, can pick whatever you want. In 10 years, I bet that my holdings will be up and yours will not be up as much or down. And so one of these, you know, really top-notch financial advisors who were picking and trading, picked uh, what he was going to do and traded it. The end of the 10 years, uh, Buffett, who had bought three exchange-traded funds, which are essentially mutual funds with lower costs, much lower costs. Um, he won the billion for his charity, just three. He held it through the 10 years, and he won. Um, what did he buy? He bought some um, bonds, He and he bought the bond universe. So all of the high-quality bonds in the U.S., he bought some. He bought some high-quality um, uh, U.S. stocks, again, in an ETF. So it was just the universe of those high quality. And he bought some international. That was it. Really simple. I mentioned costs. One of the, so the Ontario Securities Commission did some empirical research uh, recently and backed up what, uh, what Buffett was saying. And they studied 11 years of, if I remember correctly, mutual fund uh, um, performance for 80 odd, high, 80 odd percent of the funds uh, traded in Canada. And it turned out that the most consistent indicator of investor success was the lower fee mutual funds did better. So if you're paying higher fees for the privilege of buying into something, chances are that's a less good investment than a lower fee alternative. It's one of the few things we can control in our investing other than, as you're saying, buy and hold and follow a process. Wow. So <laughs> I want to do uh, another um, topic here, which we're going to divide into two episodes. I think this is a logical place to kind of wrap this one up. Harold, is there anything else? kind of under the general information banner for um, finances, financial planning, the financial planning world that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? Um, yeah, uh, there's uh, an important topic that we all have to face. And uh, it's a hard one for us to face. And that's that uh, for most of us, we're not so happy with our finances and we tend to look away as opposed to dealing with the hard questions 
we look away. And um, that's not a good plan with your finances. You should really know what your circumstances are. If um, uh, you should know whether you're saving money on an annual basis or, uh, or uh, your debt is growing. If your debt's growing, that's a bad sign. I mean, there are early years where debt can grow because you're buying a house. Um, so that's a debt. But um, we have to be very, very cautious that we're able to uh, easily finance our lifestyle and our future lifestyle. And we can't borrow today in the hope that tomorrow we're going to have more. Um, and you have to deal with this with your financial advisor, financial planner. They're going to ask you to do a budget. They're going to ask you to look at what your assets are, what your debts are, to do that hard spreadsheet exercise. None of us will do it, but we have to. We have to do it because it's of such importance. So um, if your financial advisor is not making you do that process, you should be asking why. You should be doing it yourself. There are some great tools online. There are the securities commissions have some great tools for self-assessment. Do it and keep a copy of it and compare yourself every few years to see how you're sticking to it. These are hard processes, but we all need to do it. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about all of this today. I hope that uh, we've given some useful information to your listeners. And um, I'm always available to take calls. I don't advise on investments, but if there's a problem, give me a call and we'll, there'll be another episode on what to look for. Great. Thanks, Thanks Harold. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the Dales dissipates decline.